Hello, and welcome to Fatal Fims, a podcast surrounding the women of mystery. Each episode will look at a movie or TV show written, directed, or made famous by a female-identifying artist. We're your hosts, Laura Celeste and Lacey Cannon-Gonzalez. Stay tuned. starring Lucille Ball, George Sanders, and Charles Coburn. We want to caution you that this episode is full of spoilers. The murderer will be revealed through the course of this discussion. So if you care about that, go watch the movie and come back. We'll be waiting. To get us started, here is a synopsis. A serial killer in London is murdering young women he meets through the personal columns of newspapers. He announces each of his murders to the police by sending them a cryptic poem. After a dancer disappears, the police enlist an American friend of hers, Sandra Carpenter, to answer advertisements in the personal columns and lure the killer. Trigger warnings for this episode are choking and strangulation, human trafficking, and domestic violence. So welcome back to our first episode after our sabbatical. We want to welcome our good friend Tiffany Inman today. She brought this movie to our attention when we asked her to be a guest. You really love Lucille Ball, as do both of us. As do we all. I had not heard of this one before, so thank you. Thank you so much for the recommendation. Yeah. Oh, well, you're welcome. I really, truly do love Lucy. Yes, that's a cliche, but uh, mm-hmm. when I saw this movie, I've been trying to tell a whole bunch of people about it so I really appreciate being able to talk about it and it's one that's not very easy to find you can rent it on YouTube now mm-hmm. and Amazon Prime oh and Amazon Prime okay mm-hmm. great but it's not really available on DVD there's like a two movie set you can get that's like 50 bucks or something mm-hmm. and I do believe my understanding of that one is that it's uh, headed as a George Sanders double feature mm. And uh, you don't see a lot of the older British actors that are seen as more B-movie uh, in the States be able to have their standalone sets like TCM does for, mm-hmm. you know, like Bogey and, and uh, everybody else. Sure. I don't know how many of y'all watch Noir Alley, but I really think that TCM needs to release those with the introductions that Eddie Muller does because that's how I was able to get this. I recorded it when he did it a few months ago. He shows a lot of things that aren't easily accessible. And then, of course, you get all of his detailed research information about it, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. Back to the movie. So how did you first find this one? Well, Turner Classic Movies. I was flipping through, and uh, what's on? I really don't have uh, much of a care as to what's on, as long as it's uh, something I can, you know, either have, have in the background and relax and unwind. Uh, but I saw Lucille Ball in a, it, what, what? Boris Karloff, Lucille Ball That's in enough. a movie. <laughs> okay. So I was in. I was hooked. That would pique my interest for sure. Because I was really interested to see how that was going to work. I didn't know if it was going to be a comedy. I didn't know if it was going to be. Was, well, Boris Karloff had done comedic things in his mm. career before. Very few, but he was such a uh, an effusive actor. He was able to 
transcend just the horror genre. So I was really interested how Lucille Ball and Boris Karloff would pair, but knowing Lucille Ball's uh, track record with other actors and actresses that weren't necessarily in keeping with her comedic genius sort of label. Well, that's two things about this movie that really impressed me. One is that there's really big characters in it, but the performances are still really grounded. It's not over-the-top, weird, wacky. You actually believe it, and it makes sense in the world that's created. And then the other thing is that while Lucy is really funny in this, it still is a very dramatic part for her. Again, it's not, you know, weird, over-the-top. One review I read said that this was supposed to be a noir, dark movie, but her performance moved it more into, like, a comedy well, which wasn't the word slapstick? I think that's what it said. Which I completely disagree because where's the slapstick? <laughs> I didn't see that. The slapstick that I saw, and it was very, very subtle. It happened between Lucia Ball's character, uh, Sandra, mm-hmm. and her bodyguard follower, Barrett. They had a couple of scenes that were slapstick, and they were very subtle. And there was a very subtle joke running throughout, too. Mm, okay, because... The one part that I thought maybe that could be construed as such was the gun exchange. That's that's the first one. That's definitely, um, you know, oh, okay, this is the Lucy that I, I have grown to love over my life. <laughs> yes, and that immediately made me love the character of Sandra. I already loved her, but then that scene was like, oh, she got him. <laughs> yeah, it was still a very well-done mystery mm-hmm. and still very much fits in the noir element. Yeah, it kept you guessing. We were talking about it, and while the story itself was enjoyable, I think what really made this was the performances. Mm -hmm. If they hadn't have had such strong people, and I think Lucy is the one that really pulled it together, I don't know that the movie would have been very interesting. It's not sensational, and film noir tends to go for the darkest fears of the moviegoer to be able to get them entrenched in the story like what what's hiding behind that corner what's what's going on what do will we ever know and there's not a damsel in distress in Sandra's character she's a working girl she's working uh, for all intents and purposes in the sex trade she's a taxi dance girl dance hall girl and that is equivalent now to a strip club. You have young women trying to make it in the city. It's uh, right after World War II. People are displaced. Women have lost their sweethearts. We don't know if some of these women have kids back at home. I mean, this is a community of women that have to look out for each other. Having a very touchy subject, especially dealing with women that would generally fall beneath the cracks because they are not seen as the good women. They don't take care of their of men at home. They don't take care of children. You know, they don't they don't take care of their parents and stay home. Mm-hmm. These are women who, at night, dance with men for money, which was very much frowned upon. Seeing that that is the world that you start with, going out from there, and not sensationalizing it, is very important in this movie to me. And I think that's why it's interesting that it would even be seen as boring without Lucille Ball as Sandra, because it's so matter-of-fact about a true moment during that time. And it kind of echoes forward, and, and that's what I really like about about the, the 
I was having a discussion with my parents this morning about women after the war because there was so much freedom with, you know, the men all the way fighting that, you know, women were working and taking care of themselves and taking care of each other and then having to be put back into that role of, like, when the men came back that, oh, no, you can't do these things anymore. Because she came to England to be in a show and the show closed after four nights. So that's why she's working in this dance hall in the first place. She's alone in a foreign country, just having to get by the only way that she can. And even though we had, uh, as women uh, during the war and soon after, uh, a lot of freedoms that were not, you know, not around for us. I mean, in 1947, it was 27 years since women got the vote. We didn't get the vote until 1920. 27 years is not a long time. Oh. You know, I 27 was a long time ago for me compared to <laughs> compared to that uh, that massive shift in society, particularly for Americans. But uh, the idea of keeping the hearth fires burning, you know, that that uh, old world sort of vesta. That's the whole of the, the vestiges of the. It's like oh, there's a little wife at home and she's gonna do this thing, and you know. It's a very hard job to keep hearth fires burning yes. because it's management, you know, it's it's managing the home, managing the bills, managing feeding of, of animals and people and self, protecting self. Uh, it's, it's a huge job. So that idea of just some stasis type woman standing by a fireplace, you know, spoon, it, turning a spoon in the crock pot is uh, kind of. Kind of simplistic. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Very much so. I also love the fact that speaking of women that were kind of frowned upon, looked over, it kind of got turned on its head a little bit because they brought one of these girls in to take down the person that was preying mm-hmm. on these women. So that's kind of a subtle empowerment message right there. So we start off with this really beautiful shot, just black and white kind of foggy of the London streets. Yes. We meet our first victim, Blue Eyes. She's riding in the bus and she clips out a little piece from the newspaper that tells her where to meet and um, that the person she's meeting will be wearing a red carnation. Yes, a red carnation. And so we see her walk up to this place and we don't see the killer. We I don't think we even see his shadow at that point. Mm-hmm. No, he's standing uh, further back from the edge of the building. And what's really interesting is we see her face from profile just so excited and, mm-hmm. and you know, just hopeful that this might be a wonderful encounter. Mm-hmm. And as we turn as we turn away from that scene, there's a sandwich board guy. And he's, it's, I think, Murder in Soho playing. And I'm like, oh, okay. It's that sort of movie. It's like, "Uh uh-oh, this can't be good. So so dark humor right there. Yeah. Yeah, I made a note about that. I really loved that. Well, it was a way to let you know exactly what was happening. If you don't want this to be uh, your movie experience, you should get up and go home. (laughs) This is not the one for you. (laughs) And then we get another really great shot through the window of this cafe as she's sitting down and we just kind of see his shadow now. Mm -hmm. And then in the next shot, we see his shadow as he's typing out this letter that he's going to send to the police. So we've seen him, but we haven't seen him. And I don't know, I just really loved 
these first few shots and how beautiful it was. And the cinematographer on this was William H. Daniels. He won an Academy Award for The Naked City in 1949. And he was also Greta Garbo's personal winsman. So he's got some, you know, he did some big things in his career. He knew how to make people look good. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And there's lots of shots throughout this whole movie where it's just really beautiful and foggy and great atmosphere. Well, yeah, the imagery and the atmosphere is something that really keeps you invested in the movie, too, because it is so rich. Yeah, it's much prettier than a movie like this you would expect. There's not an overusage of the shadow. A lot of the scene where there's danger involved, it's in full light. I think that's the the really important part of the the first scene where we don't see him, yet we see him. This woman, young woman, has uh, answered this personals ad for, you know, a relationship. This is not any different than online dating. It's not. It's your Tinders. It's your swipe up, left, right. I don't, I, I don't, the online dating, I don't know how that works. But it's the same, but it's the same idea. You are just going on what a person presents to you, the information that they're going to give to you based on this profile. You know, Photoshop and all these wonderful things to make everybody look like, you know, um, gods and goddesses. And, mm-hmm. and sometimes people have awful dark things lurking and you don't know until, you know, you meet them in real life. And this carries out today and this was done in 1947 the the mo really hasn't changed Mm -hmm. and throughout the film it's not just a serial killer that's the issue it's the entire meeting of and checking out these personal ads she comes into contact with danger repeatedly before she actually gets to the meat of the investigation and that is just you know that's 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 the i think that's a large point being female at any time for any reason, can be dangerous. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And it's like when she finds the actual killer, she's not even kind of looking for it. It falls into her lap. Yeah, that's another powerful message. So our letter is sent to the police, and they open it up, and we find out that this is the eighth letter that they have received. It's a poem, and it's talking, it starts off something about the white elephant's encircling her wrist and that there have been a whole bunch of girls that have disappeared and each one there has been this strange little poem that the killer has sent to the police kind of like taunting them about this is gonna happen but they've never found any of the bodies they're all very perplexed i really love the scene where they're analyzing the letter and the broken bits on the typewriter yes. and you know modern forensics and yes. everything. <laughs> um, I definitely you know, saw that. The type of paper, the watermark on it. Of course, it's just your generic kind of paper that could come from anywhere. There's no fingerprints, although there was a smudge mark this time, so they're able to kind of determine what kind of gloves they think he was wearing. And I really loved all of that because I know a lot of people nowadays are obsessed with like, you know, forensic files and CSI and all that kind of stuff. But this early bit where you don't have DNA testing and all that, it's like you're still going off of what you can. And that's that this letter is misaligned and there's a broken bit on here. Well, the fact that they could even solve crime before modern, like our forensics is amazing to me because the attention to detail had to have been so 
fine. We meet in the dance hall, Sandra, played by Lucille Ball, and her friend, Lucy, which I found that to be just hilarious. I did too. I was like, oh, that's that's another layer to that cake. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, they're up on this stage thing, sitting in chairs, and they're... It looks like a glorified stall. Yeah. It's where you put your, you know, put your mares. Yep. You know. Like, this is where the ladies go when they're not otherwise occupied. Mm-hmm. Check their teeth. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. Well, literally, the one guy says, stand up, turn around. It's like, because I can't dance with you, obviously, if, you know, you're ugly or your butt's too big oh, or this, something. This is what made me love the character of Sandra so much, because she is so over it. She's like, whatever. I don't, cool. Okay, let's dance. Shut yeah. up. I don't want to talk to you. <laughs> Give me your ticket. Yeah. <laughs> it's just very much like, I'm doing this. Because I need a job, but this means nothing to me. And I'm not going to try and make this pleasant for you because it's not for me. Uh, Lucy is the star here. She's on the poster outside. It's sixpence for a dance. And these dudes act like, I don't know, because at one point the two women are trying to talk to each other while they're dancing and the guys get really offended. That their whole attention isn't occupied with the band. Yeah. Because they feel they paid for the attention. Yes, uh, it's uh, it's the idea of the customer is always right, mm-hmm. um, and if he's going to spend the money uh, for your time, you know, uh, there's a wonderful song by Miss Tina Turner, written by Mark Knopfler, Private Dancer. Yes. I love that song. I sing it a lot, she'll tell you, and badly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just trying to do the shimmy again, that's, yep. you know. I mean, keep your mind on the money. You don't find dance halls with... Uh, rows of dudes waiting for women to pay to dance with them. That honestly would be lovely, though. Yeah. Just keep them in a stall. <laughs> I, I, mean, I, I want to dance to this. Just come here. And then go away. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't think women typically have the need to pay to get the attention of a man just to be around. And I think the reason is is because we get so much unwanted attention yes. daily. So what you're saying is that we need to start harassing the guys. Like <laughs> guys have always surrounded. No, I'm just, no, I'm just kidding. No, <laughs> no, no. Because quite frankly, it's exhausting. Why oh, would yeah. you? Why I don't would have you? Time you know? Uh, no, 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 no. Besides that, you're right. <laughs> I do love uh, when we meet uh, Lucy and Sandra sitting down together and talking. They're talking about getting off of work. That's their first interaction. That's their first conversation. It does turn into talking about who she's meeting, mm-hmm. who Lucy's meeting, but that's secondary. The first thought that they have upon sitting down is, when am I going to get off of work? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, th- this is a job. It's not an enjoyment. It's not. Well, and it's so funny because of the facade that they give to the customers it's like oh all of these girls are here and they're just so excited to dance with you and this is the highlight of their night and all of these things and it's like it's completely opposite it's kind of like the the shadow to the light that's shown yeah you get to see what it actually is the reality of it and it's a job it's a retail job mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. literally service industry yeah. Yeah. yeah yes so we learn that lucy is going to go meet Somebody that she met through the personal ads, which Sandra warns her is very dangerous, but she has her lucky elephant charm bracelet that's going to protect her. Yes. Poor thing. <laughs> well, no, because that's that. It's really sad because she is so hopeful, and Sandra is immediately suspicious. And I think she's probably just seen this happen time and time again, and just 
maybe not murder, but just seeing girls taking advantage of, taking bad things happening to them. So she knows what the reality is, but Lucy doesn't seem to. Well, you can tell that Sandra's a little bit older, a little bit wiser than Lucy is. At the time that this was filmed, Lucille Ball was 36, which, as you know, is basically like ancient, decrepit in Hollywood years. So the fact that she's the leading lady I, uh, makes me so happy. This was also her 73rd movie. I read that. That's crazy to me. 73 movies. movies. Back during the golden age of Hollywood, everybody was uh, turning and burning. It was seen as, you know, just a, a sweatshop of... of <laughs> get them done you know i mean you would have five films with the same couples uh you know one season Mm -hmm. you know to get that revenue people weren't able to do a whole bunch and the one of the very few industries that were actually looking to turn a profit they actually started losing money after the war prior to uh, the end of the war studios were making tons of money because people were so tired of being broke Mm -hmm. being scared they and wanted entertainment. Yeah, they they needed an escape. Yes. Right? But no, and like contract actors that were like in the background, they would put those people in so many movies. Like you said, they would just work them and just turn up the product. Mm-hmm. So Lucy, uh, Lucille Ball had some issues while she was filming this movie. She actually got really sick and missed a week of work. She fainted on set because of how tight her corset was. Was it that one scene? I bet it was. I'm not sure. I it, it didn't designer. say which one. A light fell on her. The heck? So this was not a great picture for her to work on, like, health-wise. But yet, she still did this great work in it. Well, because you can, you can see it. Because even though she's not Lucille Ball yet, like, the what we come to know, the great comedian, you can still see that greatness. Because everything she does, she's so dynamic as a performer, you can't help but watch her. She's, she engages your full attention. Mm-hmm. You want to know what she's doing. And that's what brings a talent agent up to her while she's sitting in this pen. And he says that there's going to be auditions at this prestigious nightclub, and he wants her to come. Um, Of course, she gives this great little speech before he says that about, no, we can't go for somewhere for a drink. I get off at two, and I'm going home. And, Mm -hmm. you know, just showing that personality right there. The statement. Yeah. (laughs) Go away. Leave me alone. Um, So, of course, this is a dream come true to get this audition and maybe get out of here. We'll be able to raise funds so she can get back home or not have to work at the dance hall. Yeah. Oh, yeah. One thing I wrote down about uh, her friend Lucy, she calls her bracelet her precious little friends. Mm -hmm. And she says she has her precious little friends to protect me. <laughs> and the, the talent agent says that they delight in variety and some unusual attractiveness in the girls that they hire for the nightclub. <laughs> what does that mean? I don't know. Like, is that supposed to imply that she's not uh, the standard beauty, or is that because she's American? I think it's because she's American, and one review that I read about this said that everybody treats her like this, um, like, rare thing because she's a loud American. I don't know, they've never seen one before or something. Like, oh, this is something really interesting. She's talking about her her feelings. Yeah. Step right up. Opinions. (laughs) You'll never believe it. A woman voicing her opinion about something. Oh my goodness, she's thinking. (laughs) She's using her brain. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen. 
And her boss won't let her off for the audition on the next Monday. So she calls on the telephone there in the lobby and asks to speak to Mr. Fleming's secretary. I think that we all kind of assume, although it's not implicitly implicitly stated that the person who answers the phone is Mr. Fleming, Mm -hmm. um, who is having a nice little kissing session with his current girlfriend. Um, so he. Oh, I kind of thought she was the secretary. Is she not? No. Oh. I don't think oh, so. Oh, yeah, because why would the secretary be in the nightclub? Yeah. So she. Okay, never mind. Go on. I looked up. Okay. So um, he talks to her and likes the sound of her voice and is saying that, you know, he might take her out to dinner and she's. In front like, of the current girlfriend. Yeah. And she's like, it's okay, I'll starve. <laughs> It's the thing. Um, She's like, I just want an audition. That's all. And he's like, okay, come back on the next whenever they are. I can't remember what day he says. And she says, I will be there. And that's when she notices the newspaper saying that her friend is missing. Mm -hmm. And she goes to the police and they're talking about, you know, what kind of girl was she? And I really liked what she said about her. She said, she's not too smart and not too dumb. Just your average girl. And it was like, aw, that's that's kind of a good way to put it. Well, what I gathered what she meant by that, and I think this kind of shows, maybe this shows it was written by a man, but I feel like what was trying to be implied there was she's not an idiot, but she's naive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She's not worldly. She hasn't had many, if any, serious Mm -hmm. relationships with men. Yeah. Uh, She's fresh-faced and chipper, even in the dance hall. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it, it 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 appears like oh you know this is this is one of one of my first jobs and I'm overseas and mm-hmm. this is coming up millhouse you know all those yes. things yes. <laughs> um, and we see Sandra and Sandra's like eh no yeah what I really liked about the uh, the scene where she's on the phone with we don't know it yet but Fleming is that she drops the phone. She stops talking to this man. She doesn't care. This this has everything to do with her life and how she can project forward. It's not good business to just hang up the phone on someone you are about to go and get an audition with to get out of here. Mm-hmm. She sees that her friend's in trouble. She yes. sees that her friend is in trouble and that is her world. Mm-hmm. And she goes to the police. Yes. That is not something that would often happen. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't have, especially in, in an area of work where you have a lot of unseemly interactions with people. Oh, you just get what you get. The fact that the chief of police at the, the Scotland Yard even cares about this case. She's a dance hall girl. She's not, she's not a citizen. She doesn't have a family to speak of. Why would they care so much about her? But then you see that they care about each case. You see the girls' faces. You see the victims' faces. And it's not sensational. You see them in, in beautiful still shots. And they're attached to their dossiers of, their, of, of what happened to them. Mm-hmm. That is that it shows a lot more care and feeling for victims of assault and murder than you will find in a lot of procedural dramas that you have on television and film now. It was respectful of the fact that this is not okay. This is not titillating. These are young women that lost their lives answering a simple, um, you know, open hearts letter. Yeah. 
Yeah, because that's something that I noticed too was every woman had a face. Thank you for bringing that up because that was something that I noticed and like her picture was on the front page of the newspaper. And yeah, that does speak to Sandra's character because it was like, okay, this is a job, but in the moment, this is not the most important thing. Mm-hmm. I need to figure out what's going on because that shows just what worth she, self-worth she has for herself and just the, the, the way she values people. Mm-hmm. So I thought, yeah. And for a movie about murder, there's not a single dead body shown at all. Yeah, mm-hmm. not a lot of violence at all. Although, no, we'll get there. That's that's much later. But I really, yeah, I really love that, uh, bringing the pictures up, because I hadn't thought about that. Mm-hmm. And there was a scene later on where she's going through all of these headshots, basically, and I'm assuming that probably those are the other women, because I don't, the police don't show us every single picture, I don't think, so I think we probably get to see them she, all. I think we get, like, four or five yes. of the eight, so. And personal items as well. Yes. Yeah. Wow, yeah, there's there's a lot more to this. There's a lot more to unpack about it. Than most of the films of this era that deal with things like this. Because like you said, she was a dance hall girl. Most most people would have been like, oh, well, she's in that world. You know, you get what you get when you do that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You put yourself in that situation. What would you expect with all of those, all of those tropes of, of making the victim the problem? Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about this oh, a couple weeks ago, how being labeled a victim and being victimized, we don't really have a catch-all word or a word for the person who victimizes the person. Mm-hmm. And I tried to rack my brain and figure it out. What do you call someone who victimizes someone? You call them, we, we, you can call them murderers, you can call them uh, rapists, you can call them, uh, you know, uh, domestic abusers. Mm-hmm. But there's not one catch-all phrase mm-hmm. for someone who victimizes another human being mm-hmm. but the victim carries the stigma of being part of that group yes with no face of what the victimization was mm-hmm. and uh i that's that really hit home with me that these vic these victims are people mm-hmm. first and i they don't use the word victim very often in the movie itself Right. That's true. Yeah. They say missing girls or you know, or the young women. They young women. They don't say victims. Wow. No, no, because as these points are being brought up, because as I was watching the movie for the first time, I thought this feels really unlike other movies of this time, this era. Mm-hmm. It, there was something, I don't know if I want to say modern, but there was something, I don't know what the right word is, but it definitely had a different feel. Because, like you said, it's like young women. The fact that they listened to a woman that was in a profession that was kind of looked down upon. The fact that they instilled responsibility in her and gave her a job and like worked with her, worked and not like told her what to do, worked with her as a group. Very interesting. That is what we lead into with this meeting. Um, she, like you said, she has gone to the police, which again is kind of a rare thing, especially since this is set in Britain and. So many of the like Agatha Christie books that I read and stuff, the British are like, oh no, we don't want to bother with the police. That's too much trouble. Yeah, everything. Everything is like, oh no, 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 we mustn't. We we shan't bother the police with this. <laughs> and so she goes to them and they do, they listen to her and they test her to... Well, yeah, Charles Coburn's character on Temple. Mm-hmm. 
it's like he really starts asking her all these questions and he's like do you know what i'm doing he's, she's like you're testing me to see if i'm a detective it's like i just love the way that scene went like, well even when he's he's asking her some questions not too prying but just prying enough mm-hmm. you don't have any family you don't have just you know kind of figuring out where she is if she would be even be applicable at all mm-hmm. to even do an off-the-cuff test he says that she's reasonably attractive and he excuses himself for noting her physical attractiveness mm-hmm. that is very respectful that is a res- that is an instance of noting that someone's attractive noting what their physical outward appearance is not making it the sole part of that being right but uh it's it's uh in order for this to work, in order for my plan to work, what I'm thinking that you could do, this has to play a part because yes. this is the M.O. for this serial killer. Mm-hmm. This is not just, hey, what's up? You know, no, no. Like, it's not reasonably even... attractive. Yeah. <laughs> like, and reasonably? Come on now. Yeah. Yeah. Because there are some close-up shots that I'm just like, oh my God, you're so pretty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So pretty. And then we'll talk about that dress later. Yes. We know about the dress. We'll talk about it later, but I have feelings. And she's giving him some sass right back, and they're playing off of each other, and it's it's such a fun scene. He never talks down to her. No, it's very much like we are on the level. I'm speaking to you as a as a colleague. Colleague, yeah. Was the other trying to think of the other C? Not conspirator. Conspirator. Well, I mean, they are conspiring together to, you know, catch the in a trap. Yeah. I also love that she's as tall as he is. Now, granted, you know, she's got heels on and stuff. But so often in movies, you would hear about, like, guys having to stand on boxes so that they weren't the same height or shorter than the women because of heels and things like that. Right. Or You still hear about that. Or you would have to have a shorter actress. But no, she's standing next to him, and she says, oh, you're about six feet tall, and she's pretty much the same height as him. Well, and she wasn't just describing his appearance. She was able to talk about what was in the room. When she was talking about what he looks like, she also includes her feeling of him as a person, you know, as what his personality is, and... She feels completely confident in who he is, and she understands that he has a lot on his plate, but, you know, in there is a heart, because he's doing, he's working so hard for these young women, mm-hmm. for these young women who are never going to get anyone to, no one's going to tell anyone that they're gone. They don't have families. They are human beings, single beings that are no longer here, and that is enough for him to continue this work. That, I mean, and that's, and that's just amazing. And everybody on this special, like, task force thing seems to feel the same way, too. They're all taking this very seriously. Mm-hmm. So they take her back, and they're giving her the plan, and they give her this gun. For moral courage, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and Here's a gun. They're not like, okay, here's how to use it or anything. They're just no. like, here it is. And they're so, like, now, sweetie, they don't, like... They don't handle her with kid gloves at all. They're just like, here, you probably got to use this. And the only thing about the gun that is at at all effeminate is the pearl handle. It is a a diminutive for a a woman's hand. But the fact that she's getting a gun and they, you know, don't really run any background on her as far as we know. You know, it's just, here's a gun. Okay. All right. I 
guess I'm gonna I'm working for the police now. And then she just sticks it under her arm and shakes hands with them and <laughs> That's leaves. Not how you do that. Like it was a file. Like yeah. if they handled it, she's like, oh, okay, thanks, bye, thanks, bye. <laughs> like I don't think I could be that cavalier with a gun. Just like cool. But also that's, it's like, thank you so much. This isn't concerning at all. (laughs) And she starts answering these ads now, and they tell her that she's going to have some protection, but they don't tell her who it is or anything else. So she's just... There's a lot of trust. Just on good faith going out there, and... There are so many little... Like, they're all kind of funny in their own little way, the way they work. I love the one, the bird lover, where she goes to meet the bird lover, and... She's there, and this little boy in this cute little hat and suit is sitting there with a bouquet of flowers. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, he placed the ad. Okay. I was like, oh, no. This is not okay. <laughs> um, and then it turns out that it was his big brother that got caught. Which, again, talk about respectful. Couldn't answer an ad, so he sent his brother to be like, here's some flowers. I'm very sorry that I had to go to war. Or... <laughs> And that is just a little kind of uh, a little bit of propaganda in there mm-hmm. talking about the good men mm-hmm. were the ones who went to fight. The ones who stayed behind are the ones you have to look out for. Uh, the, the, the soldiers and the young boys who couldn't fight. Mm-hmm. But why are all these other men just hanging out at the dance halls? Why are they? The, Fleming is a rich man. Yeah. He doesn't have to do anything. Why isn't he, sir? You know? That, okay, I just vote that we, like, hit reroll the button. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's, like, every point is just, like, oh, my God. My mind. I'm learning so much. My mind is blown. Yeah, but, and then he's so sweet, and he shakes her hand and tips his hat. And, but you are so right. Yeah. I see that totally different now. Damn. <laughs> but it's just it's just a subtle... Yeah. Just... Just the subtlety in it is amazing to That's me. That's masterful. That's really, wow. Keep going. Uh, <laughs> I do want to point out at this point that she has a lot of amazing costumes in this. Being a poor dance hall girl. No, well, she, did, she get, did she get a budget? Like, Did the police like give her a budget so that she could look the part? Well, I know she did. Because in a later scene, she has to go somewhere fancy, and they mm-hmm. say, well, that's what your budget is for. But I didn't think about it for the other well, things. yeah, because it's like if she's you know, a dance hall girl, she probably has one or two nice outfits that she uses. Mm-hmm. And probably the rest of the stuff is just normal, everyday clothing. But they're going to need to make her look – she has to look the part. Because part. Mm-hmm. this guy goes after a very specific type of girl. So, yeah. Nice. Budget. I get to be a police officer, get new clothes. Possibly be murdered, but you know, yeah. it comes with the territory. Hey, got a gun. But yeah, at least you um, look good. Yeah, oh, yeah. Just put it under your arm. Accessory. <laughs> we have another really amazing shot that I wrote down. Um, it's over the three street lights when she's going to meet um, the artist. Yes. Um, so we have that gorgeous shot, and then we have a shot of her through the window, and she's got on this really cool... Oh, this cowl type. And she has a couple of, of, of hats and things that really frame her face. And it reminds me of a lion. It really reminds me of a mane and the fact that she's, she's not demure. If you had, you know, if she had a, a hat with a net on the front. 
<laughs> but you know she has framing her face this is me hair yes hair yeah it's like drawing attention it's yes like, her face is not covered like you said it's framed mm-hmm. yeah. it's not doing that anything hiding behind the veil that mm-hmm. otherwise is my problem. you're not scary at all <laughs> no, I'm not. oh you got your justin bieber bangs yeah that's my justin bieber <laughs> And, and again, another great shot through the window. She just looks so elegant drinking her coffee. She brings back those, those kind of yeah. owl things. Mm-hmm. And she's meeting this guy at night next to the river. And She's no- probably like, okay, this is the one. <laughs> she's probably thinking. Notoriously, anything by a riverbank is kind of your scary, kind of seedy, mm-hmm. dangerous well, areas. It's like, that'd be like probably near docks or something where, you know, a lot of unscrupulous characters yeah. with no scruples. And Boris <laughs> Karloff walks up to her and at that moment I would probably like, be like okay. peace. It's <laughs> like get the gun out from underneath your arm. It's time to go to work. And one of the interesting things was the guy who originally played this part they edited him out and reshot it with Boris Karloff because of the name and they felt that that would draw more people in. Wow. So Someone's um, out there going that was my part. Which he did a fantastic job. Yeah. He did an amazing job. Because it's like you really believed him that he was like this amazing designer and just the turnaround of what happened. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just loved this scene so much where his dog is the princess. I mean, but my dog's my princess, so. I mean, the dress she has on, that that's that's quite some dress. And... The fact that he believes in his delusions so much that... Did we talk about how he got from Riverbank to dress? Oh, so he takes her to his house. And this looks like a pretty nice place. So I'm guessing he still has a little bit of money. It looks nice, but it looks run down. Yes. Mm -hmm. So it looks like it maybe once was nice, but maybe like his mind. He's having a Mrs. Havisham sort of of, uh, moment there. He's very interested about whether or not she has family. Uh-huh. Do you have anyone? Do you have anybody waiting for you at home? That's when you, you go to a job. <sighs> if they're like. asking me, is there anybody going to miss you? <laughs> I, do, I would go <laughs> and go, yeah. you know, run away. But um, I'm just here for the benefit. I just, well, I'm desperate. And there are mm-hmm. desperate people out there. And they, I mean... If, if it's between the wolf and the door and this one, you know, sometimes, you know, women and men would would go after that uh, shady feeling. But uh, when she follows him home and he introduces her to his housekeeper, mm-hmm. then it gets even more strange, I think, with the fact that there's another person. Mm-hmm. You didn't have any idea when he was speaking that there would be another person negating there. So the sense of relief that there's another live person there and female kind of gives the, okay, well, maybe he won't kill me. <laughs> yeah. Fingers crossed. <laughs> and just in terms of, like, the mystery that we're trying to solve, you you assume, okay, well, he's probably not the killer now because this other person is here, so. See, my brain went to, oh, my God, they're in on it. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen one too many movies. Yeah, we find out that he was this great designer who has now kind of lost his mind well, because his designs were stolen. Yes. And he and he fell into madness. And so he puts on this fashion show with his last great gown and 
in front of a room full of empty chairs and his dog and a couple of mannequins. And he goes and he's, he's working the crowd. Oh, he yeah. is. Like, you cannot doubt the people skills. They are there. <laughs> Sanity, maybe not. <laughs> what I really found interesting, too, with the, with the strength that goes on throughout the movie, and the housekeeper is a very strong individual. She knows what his mental break is. She knows what it is. And when she talks to Sandra and it's like, okay, well, they're talking matter of fact. It's like, okay, all right. Is he dangerous? Point blank asking if he's, he's going to hurt her. Yeah. Just don't make him angry. That conversation is a conversation that has been spoken between women forever, especially yes. in domestic abuse instances and she is being domestically abused mm-hmm. she's thrown into a, a closet and this is not the first time and we don't know what has happened to the other models because this is not the first time that yeah. he's had females over and that was just wanting to save the person who's harming you and not knowing how or not being able to find those tools mm-hmm. but and she obviously knew him before he had his mental break. Yes. So it's like, is she the only one left from the former life? And she's just stayed with him because no one else did. Mm-hmm. And just enduring. Yeah. Wow. We pulled a sword on her. I mean, dang. That's an overreaction. That's, that's, uh, that, you know, that is, that is um, a break. You know, you, there are, and what I think about his mental illness, his mental break, is that there's also a sensitivity in his character as well. They talk about why he's lost his touch with reality. His actions do not at all, are not assuaged by the fact that he does have mental illness. Mm -hmm. And the complicity of his housekeeper, neither. But there's so many different layers to having having to deal with a situation like that. But Mm -hmm. I really found the um just so much respect throughout the entire film of these things mental illness Mm -hmm. domestic abuse just not presenting it as something that is okay but also not blaming the person for the illness yes well not just using it as because this scene could have very easily been played to just try to be like a comic bit yeah but it was very dark and it it was it Became quite scary, and Boris yes. Karloff, his subtlety mm-hmm. in his movement and his his speech, and when he feels that he's being attacked, mm-hmm. he jumps and and he goes to that paranoia, and you feel it. It's like it, my answer has to be correct in this moment. Yeah, it's like literally walking on eggshells. It's mm-hmm. because it's like you're totally walking on eggshells. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, because you don't know if you say the wrong thing, he's gonna snap and is. Is he going to kill you? Is he just going to hurt you? What's mm-hmm. going to happen? Mm-hmm. Well, he threw the housekeeper into the into the closet, and she, you know Sandra's running, and she's trying to get out, and then she's cornered on this. You yeah. know, it's like he has a sword. I'm on a couch in this dress. So I she, don't know. She does the best a lot of options. She does the best thing. She sees this guy through the window that she's noticed following her, and says, "Hey." That's the guy that stole your designs. Like, talk about thinking under pressure. I don't know if I would pull that out, but that's another reason why Sandra's a survivor. She could instantly make that kind of connection and be able to shift his focus a little bit. Mm-hmm. So he goes after the guy outside the window, which in turn he like thanks. 
<laughs> ends up falling over the railing, which I thought, oh no, he died. Yeah, I, yeah. I thought he died too. I was like, oh, that's not good. But He's apparently like, oh. there was somebody down there who caught him. <laughs> There's just someone yeah. waiting with open arms for Boris Karloff to fall over the rails. I got you. And Sandra gets out of there and runs to a waiting taxi, and the taxi driver... Well, before she does that, mm-hmm. this is the interesting thing. She is about, she almost got killed by this man with a sword. She's kicked, she's screamed, she has made a lot of noise. She's not just just waiting for the hammer to fall. Mm-hmm. After she, you know, is like, hey, that's him, go get him. And then, you know, Boris's character is gone. She gets up, she runs, she lets out the housekeeper. Mm-hmm. And then she get and she has, hurry up, let hurry up and help me get dressed. She had the forethought to be able to save somebody else who was in harm's way mm-hmm. as well. She was in danger and also took it upon herself to help the other woman that was that was harmed. And that is, I mean, you don't see that. You don't see right. that forethought. It's very much just like most times it's just survival instinct, you get out. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like you said, she stopped to help someone else. So she does at this point then run and jump into this taxi and... The taxi driver says, oh, I'm engaged. And she's like, no, no, you don't understand. We got to go. And he's like, step on it. I don't care. Like, no, 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 no. You misheard me. He must leave. And so the guy jumps in to the taxi with her. And it's the guy that's been following her. Yes. That she's sick Boris Karloff on. And rightfully so. She's kind of worried about this. Yes. And he tells her that he is her bodyguard. And hands her back her gun and says, you need to be careful of your gun. And she hands him back his gun and says, <laughs> oh, you too. That was that probably was my favorite scene in the whole movie. Because mm-hmm. it just, you did not, it's like I wanted it to happen and it happened. And rarely in movies of those eras do you get that kind of gratification where the woman kind of gets one up on the man. Especially after they enter the taxi and she's like, oh no. And she's hitting him. She's fighting tooth and nail. In movies like this, you don't see the woman say, get off me, get away, hits the driver. Why aren't you helping me? Help me. Just making, just, she, everybody was going to go down. Yeah. <laughs> we are all in this. Everybody. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. And then the scene begins the beautiful friendship of Oh, I Oh, my gosh. Just, I love the relationships with Sandra and her detective unit, like the task force, because they really respect her and they really value her opinion. And I really, and I love the relationships that they form. It's really, it's cool. And this is Barrett, correct? Yes. Barrett mm-hmm. called, he calls her Carpenter, her last name. Mm-hmm. He accepts her into the force. Mm-hmm. Typically, they don't use first names. Carpenter, Barrett, Barrett. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's always doing crossword puzzles and always asking her what the answer is. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. And gets the and she gives him the clues unknowingly mm-hmm. and it's just by happenstance. Here, hold Caesar. Oh yeah. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> or the one what was it? Something about a minor. Something about what's the what's the word for an excavator? Is it something about I don't want to be something in B minor? Yeah, oh, minor. <laughs> So she answers two other ads through the course of this. One is where she goes and becomes 
the parlor maid. Oh, yeah, because the guy, the, stake, the butler mistakenly placed the ad in the personal columns, right? Yes. Mistakenly. In air quotes. I'm using my air quotes. Mm -hmm. And then the other one that she answers is where she goes to the music hall. So let's first talk about the parlor maid. Because they kind of happen kind of at the same time, right? This is where the story seamlessly overlays upon itself to where the interconnectedness of everything, thank you, Douglas Adams, happens. Mm. You know, this is, you know, a household that she's going to be be in touch with. And it's just that sort of kismet moment of, oh, okay, this is this is what we needed. This was our big break, and we won't know until much later on. Mm-hmm. So Maxwell is the butler and he is so creepy he has that oily distrustful sort of sort of idea i mean yeah. even when he's even when he's uh, about to submit the ad uh, in the paper he goes and gets clearance and you know gives it to him he's like oh yes this is fine and then he adds attractive young unattached unattached, unattached. it's also in this scene where we see fleming is friends of the guy who owns this house. He's upstairs there reading over some bylaws or something. And or doing something that he's not interested in. Yeah. He <laughs> says, oh, I have an engagement. I have to go. And they're like, but we're not done yet. And she's oh. like, oh, something better to do. I'm done. <laughs> uh, talk to him. He likes it. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the second time we see his business partner, um, whose name is escaping me. I think it's Wild. Yes. And he's like, oh, He's the brains of the operation. You can read it all to him. Let him do the boring stuff. So you're my wild. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Because he'd made a um, remark to him earlier when they were talking about the plans for their new biggest nightclub that, um, mm-hmm. however, that it's amazing that Wild can turn a profit out of his basically kind of like harebrained grandiose schemes. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, and so, yes, they accidentally place the ad for a uh, parlor maid in the personal column. And so she shows up. Yeah, because there's something immediately. When, you, when she's talking to the butler, immediately you're just like, Ugh. He's like, there's a, chances for advancement. Yeah, even the way he says it, you're just like, mm. I don't think you, you're meaning what you're saying. Well, and it's he looks at her legs just like the gentleman at the dance hall. The mm-hmm. get up and the turn around. She has to yep. s- turn around and you know, if if I'm taking out the trash, how how sexy do I have to be cleaning out the oil? You know, I mean it's like, oh, <laughs> oh. So creepy. Yeah. No, because immediately because I was like, I don't know why I don't like this dude, but I don't like this dude. As a good detective, because she is her alarm bells are going off, so she takes the job. Which is, I mean, obviously she's in that job for a reason, but it's just interesting. It's like she senses danger. She senses something wrong, and that makes her go deeper. Right to it. She's yeah. like, oh, cool. And this is where we meet Caesar, the little dog from the house, who we meet a couple of times. During this time, she also answers another ad where she goes to yeah, a symphony. symphony. This is kind of one of those funny little exchanges, too. Yeah. She gets to use her clothing budget to buy this absolutely gorgeous gown. So beautiful. Beautiful. 
The gowns were done by Eloise Jensen, and she was the costume designer for 21 different projects, and she also worked in the wardrobe department and designed for a bunch of um, I Love Lucy episodes. Yes, oh, she did. Yes, she did. Mm-hmm. And so I just wanted to give... I wonder if that has any... It wouldn't be it wouldn't be tie-in or if it was just like she got sidetracked, had it on. I don't know, but the gowns in this are just stunning, gorgeous, especially the one that we'll talk about later. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just wanted to mention her oh my God. real quick. Yes, definitely. That one dress. Oh, yeah, I love that dress. But anyway, yes, so she's, yeah, she's got this gorgeous white gown and this fur, and she's seated next to an empty seat waiting for music lover who has bought her ticket. So obviously, you know, it was well-to-do because you're going to the symphony. This guy comes and sits down next to her. And he has, doesn't he have the sheet music? Yeah. He's like conducting like there yep <laughs> the he's music. got the score and he's following yeah he is completely like that is what he's there to do that's his date and she's just like she can't she like she keeps trying to get his attention she's like hello and he's smiling and he's like excuse me hello like just trying all of these different things to get his attention and finally she hands him the note right well she opens up her purse and she opens up her purse and is kind of holding the note where he can see it. But also conveniently, Fleming can see it as well from his vantage point. Yeah, he's sitting in the box, like, just right above her. Yeah, mm-hmm. and watching all of this unfold. Which is weird because, as his business partner says, you never come to the, the, symph- the symphony. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know... Uh, he buys his ticket. Oh, oh, you're here. Oh, okay. Let's sit here. And he never mm-hmm. does really say why he came to the symphony. Yeah. Well, uh, with a guy like that, it's like he's probably not there to, for the symphony. Oh. If he was there for the symphony, he'd be there for. Yeah. Um, and so he, through, oh, this is another bit that I like. The lady sitting in front of him kind of holds her opera glasses to the side, and he just reaches down and takes them. Yeah. Talk about subtle. <laughs> the, hey, I take what I want. No, I, yeah. literally, I literally take what I want. And so, <laughs> like these, I need them. Through these stolen opera glasses, he reads the note that she's holding up for the guy sitting next to her, saying something along the lines of, you know, meet me here, blah, blah, blah. And the guy looks at his ticket and he realizes he's sitting in the wrong spot. Doesn't say anything to her, just awkwardly gets up and moves. And like the way he just barrels through the people to get to his seat. I've been in that show. I've been that person that had to like have that person cross in front of me. And then the lady that's sitting next to her gives her this look like, what did you do? Because like, obviously it was you. There's a lot going on here and I just, I can't. I can't with you. There's, there's a lot to unpack what's happening right now, so I'm just going to need you to trust me. <laughs> so at the intermission, she goes out and orders a champagne cocktail. Which, what is that? Because it sounds delicious. I digress. And Fleming comes up to her and, you know, is trying to hit on her. And she's like, no thanks, dude. Mm -hmm. And she walks out to talk to Barrett. And he says, the guy's a no-show. And she said, well, I'm going to stay. And I want to hear some music that I don't have to dance to. Mm. That is a retail worker. If I ever have heard when I want to go and eat at a place I don't have to take the dishes to the kitchen. Mm-hmm. I don't. I want to go to a place 
where I can read a book and not have to put it away. You know, just the, the simple things, something that you really enjoy can be taken away from you <laughs> for a paycheck. It's like, I used to like music. Once upon a time. Once upon a time. <laughs> Long drag of a cigarette. That was champagne cup, champagne is there. It's one sugar cube, bitters, champagne, and a twist of granola orange. Mm. Sounds delicious. Mm-hmm. Anyway. So, at the end of the symphony, a lady walks up to her and says, your car is waiting, madam. And she's like, oh, it is. <laughs> and she is taken to Fleming's newest nightclub. Well, isn't he in the car? No. No. Okay. It's just the driver. I couldn't see. I'm having flashbacks to when she met. So <laughs> she doesn't that. know where she's going. Barrett has gone home. Yes, Barrett. So she is on her own, basically, and she still gets into the car. Well, and the, again, danger going right into it because she's like, ooh, a possible lead. But yeah, because my, my alarm bells are going off. I'm like, don't get in the car. This is not good. And she recognizes the place when she gets there. She goes, this is a... Isn't it Fleming and Wild? Yeah, Fleming and Wild Club. And they're like, yes, they're newest and biggest. And so she is sitting there, and that's when Fleming comes up to her. Mm-hmm. And the woman that he was with in the very beginning is sitting at a table just a couple over from them. Oh, yes, the jilted lover. And, mm-hmm. and her and the other woman are talking. And they're like, oh, look, it's Fleming's newest conquester. And that scene is absolutely amazing because you have a chorus feel to the scene because you have the women on the uh, on the chaise roundabout thing yes and he uh, Fleming is taking Sandra out onto the floor and they're in the background and the women are in the foreground and it's taking that Greek tragedy look and feel to it right there and oh my goodness and when I was thinking about the the whole idea of the Bechdel test I was wondering where on that line does this straddle? Because the conversation between the women is about a man. It is. But it's a dressing down of him, of his caricature of who he is. And there's really no, oh, there's no pining. There's no, but Becky, you know you could get him back. if It's not that. It's, oh, you know, she's, she's going to end up just like me. We know men like him. That's, this is, he's nothing special with his trappings and his placement and all status and all of that. I think with the Bechdel test, since it's talking about a man, it's more than just, oh, am I romantically interested? It's taking men out of the equation. Can we t- can we have characters that talk about something that Other is not a man? Okay, at all. Right. But I do find it very interesting yes. that it was kind of, it was it, they were talking about a man, but not in a positive manner. Not yeah. in the way, like, you're not pining, there, yeah. there's not a want. There's no lovelorn-ness. It's just taking his measure. Yeah. yeah. And we've talked about this a lot on different episodes. We don't use the Bechdel test as like, oh, you should only watch movies that... Um, because the Bechdel test isn't foolproof. No, it can still be a, an incredibly sexist, awful movie and pass. But we just kind of use it to gauge different things. It's a different perspective to be able to, to look around your your life as well and say, how many conversations am I having that revolve around a male? How tethered is my existence to a male? And 
it's very interesting to see how many times they come up, whether we're taking care of them or uh, beholden to them, somehow have to answer to them, say, in the workplace, uh, or just even, even, you know, in your interactions at the store for yourself, just, and then placing them in your mind, uh, like buying feminine products. There are a lot of women out there who won't go to the checkout if there's a male clerk. That is completely changing what you are doing to suit the male. So it's, I think it's an, an amazing way to just look at our society as a whole and not just place it on, well, you should see this or you shouldn't see that. You yes. should question these things mm-hmm. based on this new observation and maybe find something else. Uh-huh. Yeah. Word my mind again. You heard it here first. No, but that's so true, especially when you're married, like not bringing up mm-hmm. a partner. I'm really bad about that. That's a really interesting point. They're narrating how this interaction between him and her is going to go, and it does not do anything of what they said it was going Sandra. to do. They sit back down and she asks him to have the singer sing the song that um, she just did that she really liked. And while he's gone, she leaves. I thought that was a baller move. Literally my words. My words. I loved it so much. The first time I saw it, and uh, the song uh, is All for Love, which is a reprise from the original film, they use the singer so well, too, and the, and the, and the band leader. And they're discussing in, in, you know, in between songs. And then Fleming comes up and like, hey, sing. And she's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> Like, huh? okay. okay, and then singing it again, and he gets back, and she writes him a note. Bye. What? Mm-mm. This is not. No phone number, no address. Just like, just hey, like, great time. Bye. No, literally, I have my note at home, and I said that was so baller. Because <laughs> it was so. Because she's like, play the song again, or however she said it. You're like, oh, they're, they're going to fall in love, and you think you know it's going to happen, and then she's gone. So when I'm so excited. He does end up meeting back up with her at the house she's working at because as we established earlier, he knows the guy who owns the house. Mm -hmm. He says, I've been searching the city for you and nobody knows where you were or who you are or anything. And this is when we find out what's actually going on at the house. They are luring these women. Well, because did we talk about right before because the butler comes in and talks to Sandra and is like, this man is coming Mr. Moriani. But yeah, because he's like, this man is coming, and if you make a good impression on him, he'll take you to South America and all of these things. And she's like, oh, could I? Or I don't remember how she plays it, but she, you know, plays the part. And yeah. And she gets the name of the boat out of him. Yes, yeah. she does. And Moriani is not a fan. Because she's, she's um, flirting with the butler, saying, oh, I've enjoyed working with you, and, you know, maybe... And he's like, I could come to South America too. And she's like, Yeah. That'd be lovely. Sailing away on the on the ship Moriani. No, the ship blah blah blah. Moriani is the blah blah blah. He's like, ah. She <laughs> is so smart. She is. Like she deserves she used, to be a detective. She uses mansplaining to her advantage. <laughs> <laughs> That's all. Oh, oh. Oh, oh. <laughs> like, so she meets with him and Moriani can tell right off the bat that oh, yeah. she's smarter than their average girl that they get. He um, actually says that she's too smart. You don't hear that 
in most film in that era or any era. Because he's intimidated. He's threatened by the fact that she's aware. Like, she knows what's going on. Yeah. And, that, and he's like, oh, oh, and he's on alert. She's sent out to walk the dog because Fleming has come to find her. Oh, yeah, because he sees her and follows her back down into the kitchen area and is talking to her. And then the butler's like, what are you doing here? Basically, you know, the equivalent of Elon Marking is Like, what are you doing? This is my girl. While she's out walking the dog, Moriarty follows her. I was so concerned about the dog. I know that shouldn't be where my <laughs> attentions were, but I was just like, is the dog okay? Don't hurt Caesar. Well, I was worried he was going to be annoyed that the dog would like, kill her or something. Mm-hmm. I don't want him to. So he grabs her by the arm and... Really forcefully. Yeah. Fleming has gone out to try to find her again. When he starts attacking her, Fleming comes to her aid. I mean, she's fighting him. Well, she's fighting and screaming and doing all of those things. She's not trying to be cute out here. It, uh-uh. That's what I noticed about a lot of the like the physical, like, it, like the altercations. Because a lot of times in older movies, it feels very stylized. It feels very choreographed. It's like, oh, no. And then it's like, the guy draws back his fist and punches the guy. And he's like, oh, and he grabs and his face. You hear a huge smack. Yeah. And this one, it felt very real. Mm-hmm. It, it just, it had a really healthy dose of reality in the way that it was staged. Because that's why when he grabbed her, I wasn't used to seeing women grab that way in, that, in older movies. Because normally it's just like, hey, what are you doing? And it's, I have you by the shoulder, like this. Yeah, it's 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 stylized and it doesn't feel real at all. And the way he grabbed her felt like, ugh. And she stops screaming and you don't realize why she stops stopped fighting. Mm-hmm. And then you realize, because you can't see it, when George uh, Fleming comes up and, uh, watch out, he's got a knife. That's the only reason why she would quit fighting is because of this really close. Mm-hmm. And she couldn't. That was, yeah. Yeah, very well done. So they knock him out. Barrett pulls up at this point, and she kind of makes a little motion for him not to say, you know, let on that they know each other. Mm-hmm. Again, quick thinking. They haul this guy away. Fleming says something like, I thought you didn't appreciate my advances. She said, oh, but I did. Yeah, I don't know, because she kind of fell, fell to pieces, but I think I might. I don't know. I don't, I don't know how I feel about that scene. There was an attraction. She did have an attraction. Yeah. Now, if she was just going to leave mm-hmm. the the uh, the dance hall or his his club, the leaving would have been enough. She left a note. Uh-huh. She left a note, and she doesn't. She's not one to speak without having something to say. Yeah. So there was. She did have an attraction to him, and I think initially the reason why she was so attracted to him is because he was attracted to her voice. He mm-hmm. had absolutely no idea what she looked like, and that's not his MO. Mm-hmm. He enjoyed the fact that she was a quick wit. She's obviously smart. She can take care of herself. She doesn't care about you. Yeah. <laughs> She's independent. She does not. <laughs> you know, and she has, a, she has a nice voice. But the fact that those things have absolutely nothing to do with somebody's physical appearance is what really is, is cool about this. He's attracted to her essence as a person and i think that's that that was really cool but yeah the oh but the i can understand adrenaline going through it's hey i just a knife and i was walking a dog because this is the dog (laughs) this was the first time well no i guess not because she did get attacked 
in the artist's house. But I think this, because there was a weapon, well, no, there was a sword, never mind. But but he still, you kind of felt like maybe Boris Karloff's character wouldn't hurt her. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think maybe, I think what it was is there was more of an immediate danger with Moriani, because I think we all, like at that point, we think that's, that's the killer. Yeah. So maybe it was just kind of this release, this relief mm-hmm. of thinking this is over yeah. sort of thing. Well, and the idea of going to South America, going and, you know, if this is the M.O., they have ways of disposing of people. Mm-hmm. This is human trafficking. Yes. That's what this is. And the fact that it's so, it's so precise. It's such a machine. And, you know, it's 1947. It's... After the war, I mean, how many women and children and, and, and men were put into human trafficking situations because they had no rights? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is this was an opportunistic time for you know people to take advantage of of, of loss of lost people, mm-hmm. and we are seeing that you know today too, and the fact that it's that that element is so real yes. and it's pretty much the same way it's always been done and still being done. It's just... Well, because that was another thing that I thought was interesting is the fact that they did, this was a human trafficking case. Like, you don't... I don't know that I've ever seen a movie. I keep saying movies of that era, but I really... There are a lot of issues that this movie touches on that I hadn't seen previously. And it was done in a really realistic way. It wasn't, like you said, over sensationalized it was like this is what's happening mm-hmm. this is what they're doing and it's like the girls don't listen mm-hmm. Concur- and it's concurrent issues mm-hmm. you know the dating side i'm seeing meeting people you don't know uh mental illness domestic abuse human trafficking uh, just... we might need to go change the triggers too because we were trying to find triggers and i was like at, at first class i was like i don't know but now unpacking it there's a lot more we might want to yeah. Put syringes down. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, no, no. Good. Very good. So they do. They take down this human trafficking ring, and they think, well, Sandra thinks that the case is over. Yes. Um, her and Fleming are engaged. She comes to the police Precinct. station um, to tell them that, you know, she's... She's done her job. Now she's quitting the force. And she thinks that they're going to find Lucy in South America. That they know that this isn't the answer to the case because a human trafficking ring wouldn't be sending them letters to draw attention to the fact that these girls are missing. They're literally talking about this right after she leaves because then they say, well, shouldn't you tell Carpenter or tell Sandra? And he's like, let her have her, her happiness. Let, let, I mean, this she's is... She's got her job. She's, yeah. Let her have a rest. Like, she, she plunged headfirst into danger more than once. Let's <laughs> let her be happy. <laughs> we've got what well, we've got. And she's having an engagement party, and she's invited them to come. Oh, it's so sweet. It is, it is. Her and Fleming go shopping, and he buys her the dress. Buys her all the things, plus the dress. There was a little scene that happens when they get back to the house, and he's showing her around, saying, you know, this is going to be your house. And, of course, you know, it's an absolutely gorgeous, grand house. You know, he's making the jokes about She's probably thinking how she's going to redecorate it all, and... And the chauffeur passes by and gives this really weird kind of pointed look. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh. It's the chauffeur. It's the chauffeur. That's what I did too. I was like, it's the chauffeur. It's not. 
it, it's it never comes back into play again. So I'm not exactly sure if that scene was there just to kind of like throw mm-hmm. you off or, but yeah. You know, I'm w- wondering if the chauffeur, and this was something that I thought with the second viewing, the chauffeur is, I'm not sure if he's just specifically Fleming's chauffeur mm-hmm. or if he's the chauffeur for Wild and Fleming, mm-hmm. since they do use their car or cars a bunch traveling for work. Mm-hmm. So they may have a chauffeur on retainer for the club. Mm. Mm-hmm. So he'd know a lot of things then. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. And the police get another letter, another poem talking about shower of shimmering stars on blue. Mm-hmm. When she comes down for the engagement party, she has on the dress. And it is this absolutely gorgeous dress with stars all over the bottom of it. And, of course, it's in black and white, but they tell us that it's a blue dress. Mm -hmm. So we immediately know she's the next victim. And uh, when Temple comes to the party, Uh and he's like, "Uh, yeah, when he sees her, (laughs) basically he's like, oh, no. I have to tell you something. <laughs> and it's also at this point where in Fleming's personal study, she's found all these headshots, including one of her friend Lucy, Lucy's elephant charm bracelet. And how does she find this, though? How does she come across the pictures and the trinkets? Who leads her there? The question. Okay. <laughs> it's wild. Wild has done it, I say. Well, he's the one that leads her to it. How, why does, oh, because they go into uh, Fleming's study and he has all of these signed photos of all these women. He says, this one's particularly risque or something. He goes, I think I'll, you know. Look, look, look how many people you're going to have to compete with mm-hmm. with this man. Yes. And so he's like, let me just put this up. Like, and she's like, oh, no, let me see it. He's like, oh, no, 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 no. It's much too offensive for you with your delicate feminine ways or, you know, however he put it. Um, and put it in the drawer, and as soon as he leaves, of course, she goes and opens the drawer, which I thought that's exactly what I would do. And in the drawer, along with that photo, which she reads it, and her eyebrows kind of raise, which is kind of a funny moment, but then there are all these photos of women, and one of them being Lucy, her elephant charm bracelet. And some other, like, jewelry and personal items. And that's when Temple walks in. And so all of this information, she has this information, he, he knows the information about the dress, and then it all kind of comes together in their conversation. And they arrest Fleming. Well, and what I thought was interesting too, though, Temple asks, he goes, who was with you or who knows that you bought that dress? So immediately he's already trying to whittle down mm-hmm. the list of suspects. Mm-hmm. And he, she said, what did she say? Fleming and the chauffeur, which was yeah. another point for the chauffeur in my mind. Because I'm like, <gasps> Yeah, they arrest Fleming. He does not take well to being arrested (laughs) this is a guy unlike sandra who doesn't have a lot of he's never been told no yeah Mm -mm. he's got (laughs) by on his charm and everything and And his money yeah yeah now charm and prestige he's in a really tough spot he just kind of crumples oh yeah and the first one that gets it that he turns on is sandra yes he's like oh yeah so you're just a liar I had a job. I didn't tell you what it was because I was undercover. Mm-hmm. I was protecting people. I wasn't catting around. I, she stopped. She stopped her job once she became serious with him. Mm-hmm. What, I, what I love about that scene between Temple and Sandra talking about the evidence that is you know, presented in the study, 
she says no no and she she t- reverts to the the trope of a woman always protects her man mm-hmm. that was her first instinct because she loves him mm-hmm. and then she stops and she looks at the evidence in front of her it's like this is a fact that these things are in his possession i love him is a subjective feeling this is objective this is subjective and being able to show that a woman could take her heart out of a decision based on the evidence provided mm-hmm. is really important and a turning point i think in that whole idea of stand by your man yeah because that very much was because you could see it on her face you could see the dilemma because she like her heart was pulling her one way but the cold hard facts were in front of her mm-hmm. and she went with that because really and truly you have no choice it's like especially being as smart as she was she knew there was no other choice. He had, even if he didn't do it, he had to answer for why these things were, were there. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he refuses to see her. Because obviously it's her fault. And <laughs> she keeps trying. She appeals to Wilde. Please talk him into seeing me. Convince him. There was a really weird scene, too. It just it, it kind of tipped me off a little bit. I just like, ugh. When she goes to see Fleming and he walks out of the room and she puts her hands up and Wilde comes hand over her hand. I was like, that's really familiar. That's a very intimate thing to do. And mm-hmm. it's really possessive. Yes. Like, I don't know. That immediately set on that that oh. hidden predatory. Yeah. And he holds both. He, t- he ends up holding both of her hands at one point while they're talking. Mm-hmm. Um, when Fleming is being held, what I thought was really interesting, given the amount of privilege, prestige that he has, he is treated like any other person under suspicion for a crime, there is no, oh, well, you know, I mean, hang out at your house. Mm-hmm. He'll come get you. No, you, you, we're going to keep talking to you. We're going to have a round robin of different people come and talk to you. Mm-hmm. And you're going to have to realize that this glibness that you're showing us right now is not not what we're doing. This is not how we play here at mm-hmm. Scotland Yard. And mm-hmm. the, that is... A very interesting idea to see in our social climate as well when you don't see that outward appearance of the same crime here, 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 and here is going to be treated the same way and questioning yes. and as you gather evidence. So I, it was really interesting to see a, a rich white male being basically told what he could and could not do and how to be careful with this stuff because we, I don't care who you are. Yeah, having his rights taken away mm-hmm. in a sense like the same way anyone else's rights would be taken away in that situation and being treated like a potential murderer. Yeah, Yeah, like a potential murderer. And yeah, he did not get any, because I found that really interesting too, because he went from being this very glitz, glam, you know, cigarettes and tuxedos and and nightclubs and all these things. And then he was just in this stark, bare room. There was no muss, no fuss, no special privileges at all. Mm-mm. He they, wasn't even allowed to shave nope. because you can't have a razor inside. So mm-hmm. it's like, oh, y- your pretty boy image, I don't care. Because so many times it's like if you see movies like that, it's like, oh, the guy's so charming that he ends up sitting around with the police officers and joking or whatever. It's like, no, 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 no. It was very much clear, hard line was set and the boundaries. He was in his little confines. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, also, too, if they thought that he was going to harm Sandra, they were probably like, ugh. 
no special treatment for you. That, that might have not helped yeah. him. He's like, what? But, but yes. But also you see how that affects his mindset because he just crumbles. Yeah. He's like, oh, oh. He's like, I'm being treated like a, like a person. <laughs> Wilde tells him that he may be able to get him a plea bargain and he'd just get life in prison. And he said, no, it it better be death for me because I couldn't live like this. I hope I do. That sounds like a man. <laughs> like if a man gets sick, like does that not, I just need to die. It's like, I can't take this in between. <laughs> you need to be healthier or not. Healthy or dead. <laughs> I prefer health. <laughs> yeah, all of that happened. And then um, Temple goes to see Wild. Oh, and we didn't even talk about the fact that um, in the beginning they talked about the poems that the killer wrote were strongly influenced by Orlando Baudelaire. Mm-hmm. So Temple goes to see Wilde, and there's this really, you just feel something. It's mm-hmm. like something feels real sinister, and just something just teeming over the surface. And it's this cat and mouse kind of back and forth thing. And Temple, he is such a, an amazing character. He's so astute in his observations Mm -hmm. and he asks wild for his copy of baudelaire asks if fleming had access to the library and and we also have found out through the course of this that fleming pretty much i mean that wild pretty much lives with fleming i think he lives with him all the time right no they're roommates yeah pretty much because he said once they get married he'd find a new place to live and sandra had told him no no no, i'm you know not kicking you out you just stay here but you definitely get the sense that they don't think that fleming could have really pulled this off it's a little too much for him he doesn't have to chase women there's no there's there's no game there. There's no, there's there's no there there. It's he's got money. He's got girls. He's got music. He's got clothes. He has a house. He doesn't have to. And he decided to settle down with, with Sandra. Mm-hmm. That's not the typical mo. But for for who they were looking for, and what I found really interesting about the Baudelaire, the name of the book was Flowers of Evil, and he uses the red carnation to show. Oh, oh, I, oh, I love all those little details. <laughs> Such a smart bad guy. We love details. We love a detail murderer. So while he's there, he gets a call that. No, 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 no. Oh. Because they're having this back and forth cat and mouse sort of cat and mouse sort of thing, whatever. You know what I mean? Um, and Wilde says, Oh, didn't you know? Fleming confessed. And Temple's like, the hell and goes and picks up the phone and is like because that's how you dial <laughs> <laughs> he's like is that true and and you know the look comes over his face and he's like oh oh i'm very i'm sorry to have wasted your time or whatever and it was a tipping point where wild, wild was yeah. becoming very upset that temple was able to dress him down like this is a sad little person who <laughs> needs to be able to talk to women and can't at all. Uh, he doesn't have a good self-esteem. He doesn't, you know, he can't can't do much of anything on his own. Um, you know, just the idea that uh, Baudelaire being a controversial poet anyway, um, 
seeing the macabre as the beautiful wanting to destroy all that is joy because you can't enjoy that in yourself that you know that icky if i can't have it no one else can there's you know there's if there's not enough for me there's not any for anybody and he's in the same situation as fleming he's successful rich well-dressed smart he could find a lovely young woman mm-hmm. he just sees that darkness with himself and doesn't believe it's possible it's the mindset total mindset mm-hmm. he decides that he's going to leave yeah at this point you know something's up but i was still guessing kind of at this point just watching it because just the way he responds and the, the confessions you're like okay so I wasn't quite sure what way it was going, but I knew he wasn't on the up and up. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he decides to leave the house, and I don't know, I don't remember where he's going, but he calls a taxi, or he has the maid call a taxi, and he's waiting, and then Sandra shows up, and she's completely distraught in a gorgeous dress. Mm-hmm. Sorry to like make that an observation, but it was a gorgeous dress, and she is so distraught, and. She's, yeah, she's talking to him about how upset she is, and he's being... Creep factor. Like, creepy kind to her. He's like, oh, why don't you lay down? You need to rest. Lay down. And so, yeah, he... I'll go call a taxi. (laughs) No, 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 don't do that. (laughs) Um, And he's, he's talking to her, and you see him take his... His... And he's right behind her, so she's yeah. just like kind of looking off and over here, and he's behind her, and he's like, no. <laughs> and you can see where his set, this is, and this is where they really take you into the mind of this, of this, of this killer. Mm-hmm. He is going to Lisbon. He got a very late night, a midnight plane to Lisbon. I gotta get out. Gotta get out of here. Mm-hmm. He He's about to go, and he's just, he's scurrying like a little, like a little rat. Yes. Until she comes in. And then when she's there, his breathing calms. He calmly puts the things away. His need to destroy this beauty that he loves is so much more important than his actual innate survival. Uh, He's got to feed that urge. He has to feed that monster in Mm -hmm. order to, Mm -hmm. because he would not be able to live in Lisbon knowing Mm -hmm. that that was unfinished. Yeah, or that she was still. Uh Mm. Yeah. No, because that was actually something we forgot to touch on, is in the exchange with Temple, Temple observes, he goes, you're in love with Sandra. I knew that came out, but I couldn't remember when. Yeah, it was in that moment. So when she shows up at the house, you're like, okay, well, this is going to be awkward for him because you're like, does she know? Like, how much does she know? Mm-hmm. And yeah, but it was very much, it was this frantic pace, like must go, must go, survival, get out. And then it stopped. And then the need to feed feed the beast mm-hmm. overwhelmed the sense of, of urgency. So as... He, and it's so predatory, that shot. Because yeah. he's just like looking over her. And she's, it's just, it's, it's hunter prey. It's mm-hmm. so, it's so well captured visually. So he wraps his, is it a tie or is it a cravat? It looked thing? like a cravat. Okay. It mm-hmm. looked like a cravat. And the 
intimacy of, of, of it. So you know that it's a ritual. This is a ritual for him and how he's talking about it and trying to make her understand that this is how it has to happen. And mm-hmm. then he's just not there anymore. Yep. There's there's no soul there anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and Brilliant performance, mm-hmm. quite honestly, mm-hmm. but very... So creepy. So incredibly creepy. Yeah, as he is trying to strangle her, you know, inverse the police, because this was a setup. The Calvary! Mm-hmm. But he locked the door, too, so they had to, like, bust through a window. Didn't Barrett yeah, they had to go through the window? Yeah, and Barrett cut his cheek. And what that, that's something that I found really interesting about this as well. They showed blood. That was really uncommon for movies back then, mm-hmm. to actually show someone bleeding with their own blood. And, and yeah, she is saved, although a bit um, shaken as it, one would be. Yeah, it wasn't quite the way they planned it, but it, 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 it's got happened. the job done. Yeah, and now they obviously have enough to put him away because mm-hmm. um, he did actually attempt to murder her. Mm-hmm. And Fleming has been cleared, and yeah, how, how do we end it? And it ends well, to it all for love, which was the song that, mm-hmm. that they were playing in the well, at the end, and this is something that really got me, pardon me, she and Fleming are at the club, and they're talking, and she's not sure when she sees him whether or not he's going to forgive her, mm-hmm. because you still got me arrested for things that were not mine in my house. Mm-hmm. Uh, they thought I was going to be uh, in forever in the jails. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't, I don't know. It, it's just, I, I did my best. People stop being murdered by your friend. I mean, that's your friend. No. Um, but he's he's fine with it. He understands and he sees mm-hmm. that it's more than his freedom that was important. They were trying to find someone who was ending lives. Yes. But she says that sh- they should never speak of it again. Mm. She, asked, she asked to never speak of it again. Now, what part is it dance hall is it the ads is it the entire work with the police is it wild what part of her experience does she feel she has to erase so she feels that if we don't talk about it'll go away Mm -hmm. so she's internalized the trauma Mm. of what's happened to her Mm -hmm. but cannot bring herself to speak of it ever again with this man who's going to be her husband. So she's going to carry that around forever. And that, in and of itself, to me, shows no matter how strong a character is, male or female, trauma is so debilitating when you are placed in victimizing situations Mm -hmm. that the instinct is to get away from it pretend it never happened and and the fact that you see after all of this she's representative of all of the other women who had gone through that i mean the the human trafficked women Mm -hmm. down in south america once they were rescued did they also have the idea of let us never speak of it again because it there was not a place for her to go and talk about i was assaulted and almost killed by this man Mm -hmm. um where do I where do I go get help? You just you just didn't talk about it. There was no way to kind of resolve that or 
to speak about it or to find closure, to just live, be able to live with it with without the, yeah. ignoring it. The knowledge that this is a part of me mm-hmm. because this is my experience. Yes. So it's trying to excise the experience mm-hmm. and pretend that this this was all a dream that's never. Because she almost died three times. She was almost. She was in, in a perilous near death situation three times. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a lot. Mm-hmm. And then also it's like coming from coming to a foreign country, having your show closed, not being able to get home, having to work in a dance hall. In a, in a service trade or however you want to put that. There was, that was a lot. The murder of a friend. Murder. Um, and the, the body uh, when they do find her. Mm-hmm. I love the fact that they didn't show her body. It was in the, um, in the morgue and the echo in the room and all of those windows. So you have this idea of light and life. And it is a room that only sees death. And... Her face is shown, and it's put back, and they don't talk about. It's a, such a shame that she was such she was such a pretty girl. They don't ever say anything like that, mm-hmm. because when you see, it was like, oh, she was beautiful. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you know she had one eye and no nose. Right. She's a person, a human being. She has worth because she is she is a living being. Yes. Yes. But uh, yeah, that ending was just. So disheartening when that's what she says. Yeah, because I found I found it very different from the rest of the movie. Because and now saying that, yeah, that makes a lot of sense because it didn't it didn't seem like a very Sandra way to deal with it. But also, it was probably very indicative of the time too, because the war was over and people had seen so many atrocities. And there wasn't counseling, and there wasn't... Counseling was also looked down upon. Right, yeah, yeah. If you needed to go get your head shrunk, then you were crazy. So so all these people that were seeing this movie probably... Needed a nice little wrap-up. Needed to, like, tie it with a bow. Well, but they would have also been experiencing this type of thing of, oh, we just don't talk about what we saw. Mm -hmm. We just don't talk about these things that we've been through, and then we can pretend that they didn't happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And within that, you still have human trafficking. You still have, you know, uh, lonely hearts murders. And those have been prevalent throughout the 20th and now the 21st centuries. The 21st century is digitized now. Uh-huh. I told my mother if slash when <laughs> I actually find somebody that I'm interested in marrying, we are doing a thorough background check. We are talking to people because there are way too many stories of these women, you know, 30s and 40s who marry someone that seems really nice and then they are a serial killer. Yeah. I mean, you never can tell. Yeah. Or maybe you can. No, actually, you can. <laughs> <laughs> if you look. So future husband, I will be doing a thorough background <laughs> check on you. Thanks for coming to Laura's TED Talk. <laughs> but yeah, this was a this was a great one. Thank you so much. Yeah, oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And it's like not only does this touch on some very different issues than you would see typically in movies of this era, but I've, that's the thousandth time that I've said that. I'm so done with it. It was really entertaining, which is so funny to say after we've talked about all this very heavy mm-hmm subtext that's kind of in there in the layers but it was a very entertaining watchable movie 
Yes. And it I love the fact that, again, it wasn't sensationalized. Right. It was, here's a problem, and people were trying to fix it. Mm-hmm. But there's so much humor in it. I laughed so many times mm-hmm. because just the interactions between the characters, there was a lot. There was good chemistry between yeah. the people working together. And people who work in law enforcement and that uh, in you know very high-stress jobs have to rely on their humor to, to get through. Yeah, because detachment is a very important part of the job. Because if you take everything home, you will... You will crumble. Yeah, you will crumble. So just some fun trivia things about this movie. All right. Um, this was not the original title. The original title was Personal Column. Yeah. Oh, Personal Column. They decided that they didn't like the title, so as a publicity stunt, they took out personal ads in 25 major newspapers around the country looking for a new title, and this was the one that ended up winning the contest. The original script that was written... It was written by three. The original, original movie was, but then... This one, they didn't get the okay for it because it didn't pass didn't pass the production code. Mm. And so they said, no, you can't write this. And mm. the original producer of it was James Nasser, whose family owned a whole bunch of theaters in California. He built the Castro Theater, Lacey, okay. um, where the Noir City Film Festival is held every year, which is just an amazingly beautiful, opulent building. Um, but he decided that he wanted to get into making movies, and so this was mm-hmm. his first one that this was his first film that he was going to produce. Well, because of all these issues, they ended up selling it to another producer, and then the new screenwriter came in and I guess completely rewrote it because it passed the production code and they were able to get it made. But Lucille Ball was not the first person cast in the role of Sandra. Joan Leslie was, and she had just won a lawsuit against Warner Brothers to get out of her contract there, and she was looking for more womanly roles to play, and this was the one that she chose, Mm -hmm. but because of all the delays and everything, she went and did something else, and Lucille Ball ended up being cast in it. She was actually the last person signed on to the movie, and in my mind is the one that really makes the movie. Oh, yeah. Definitely. It's fully dependent on her. George Sanders. I really liked him in this part because he doesn't usually get to play like the romantic person. He's the professional cad. Mm-hmm. Yes. Very much the smarmy, smarmy lead. Yeah. Like in Rebecca. Yeah, we'll remember him from Rebecca. As Jack Bravel. He also did the voice of Shere Khan in Disney's The Jungle Book. Yes. Because you And you can hear it. You can totally hear it. But I think what was fun about this role that was a little bit of a departure for him is that you got to be vulnerable. You got to kind of show the cracks. It wasn't just this perfectly glossed over playboy. And I love it because uh, his biography was called Memoirs of, Perf- of a Professional Cad. <laughs> <laughs> I love the fact that in the opening credits, Lucille Ball is the second build person on the film. It's George Sanders, Lucille Ball, Charles Coburn, and then Boris Karloff. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Billing over Karloff, especially during that time. Wow. And, you know, it just shows that she was such a workhorse that to get second billing is... Really? Yeah. Yeah. Well, also, 
she is the star of this, so she technically should have been billed first. first. Yet at the same time, you've seen, you know, the, the, the centralized female character. It's like, oh, she's over there, and so-and-so is blah, blah, blah. <laughs> oh, yeah, and she's here, too. <laughs> I've even seen him build like third or fourth and you're like but that guy had the little bitty part it's just because he was a bigger name mm-hmm. he opened the door that's all he needed he must have top billing <laughs> yeah so this was a review that Dennis Swartz said he said the flawed film never settles into a dark and sinister mood but succeeds only in keeping things tension free and light hearted with continuous breezy comical conversations as bald as a sturdy Nancy Drew turned at sleeping with her comical detective partner. It can't quite measure up to compelling film noir, but it's pleasing and easy to handle despite everything feeling so contrived and confining. This guy didn't know what he's talking about. No, it was the closest to real life in a noir film that I have ever seen. It is not overacted. The score itself is very understated throughout the entire film. It's not reliant on on um, forcing a mood. The interactions speak for themselves. Mm-hmm. The chemistry between Lucille Ball and George Sanders is undeniable. They just light up the screen. They do. And it was it was not what critics of the time were looking for. We want to see more leg on the girl. I need to see her actually screaming and then full pan of her face. Just that's they wanted sensationalism. It's like, uh, it's 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 okay. It's like you're trolling something that is is great. I mean, high talking <laughs> fast talking high pants is great. But let's get to the story. There's 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 a there's a crime. Let's <laughs> let's get the guy. Yes, very much so. And I think what's cool about that is that the fact that it did, it was so realistic and more, more true to life, I think, it's like there are funny moments. And like you said, it's like detectives have to find the funny to be able to deal with the work that they do. Mm-hmm. So I find it really funny that it was so light and breezy. It's like all we can be worked, we weren't reading into some things. Well, for him, it would have been light and breezy. Mm-hmm. He would not have been in a situation to have to dance at a dance hall. Uh, get work as a parlor maid, be a model for, you know, a fashion designer. Answer personal ads and possibly get killed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, You know, you know, probably not his real use. These were not, you know, part of his experience. So you you don't understand and you have no desire to understand it. You want to put someone in the box and you want the person to do the job and you don't really care about what they do. But this was written and directed by men and they still took the time with these things and played them in a way that wasn't demeaning or light. Um, you know, they, they gave gravity to these issues. And, and Lucille Ball, as Sandra, was treated a lot of times, I don't know if we could say lead detective, because I think that was Temple, but she was put in a place of leadership. Definitely. And people respected her. So what grade would you give this? Oh, absolute A. Really loved it. It um, Lucille Ball makes the movie. Uh, I love the performances, unpacking the meaning and the different layers that this film has for the time is incredible. So yeah, and then just for the dress alone, a. <laughs> <laughs> just, 
I have to give it an A for the writing and the character development. The Everyone's character is developed. Even the forensics uh, detective looking at the typewriter, you know who he is by the way he's dressed. He's got, he's not a hairs out of place. He's very serious and he knows his stuff. Just, I mean, just the smallest, the smallest details repeated. Everyone understands the rules. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have to concur. It can't get anything less than an A. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we don't work on the plus system, do we? We can. Oh, I didn't know. We hadn't discussed. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, like an A plus wouldn't be off the chart for no, me. No, it was very, it, it still rings really fresh now, so many years later. It's a fun watch. It's really engaging. It has a lot of good stuff there. It has a really good role for women. Turner Classic Movies re-released this one. Yeah, let's get this on DVD. Yeah. And not in a $50 DVD package. Yeah. <laughs> Who would like to start with their recommendation? Well, um, this is a, a, a bit of a departure, The Letter with Betty Davis. It was a movie about a wife of a Malaysian uh, plantation owner who is in a uh, friendly relationship with another man neighboring the plantation. Well, he comes over one night to her home where she's alone, and she has to shoot him in self-defense. But was it really self-defense? Mm -hmm. It places Betty Davis in a wonderful in a wonderful role where you're not quite sure how far to give her um, the benefit of the and the use of uh, fiber arts is is well placed in it. She crochets a blanket, and you know as things unravel, so does the yarn from the skein. It's absolutely mm. amazing. So I would definitely, if you're looking for a noir film that is. Uh, a little off a beaten path and has strong female characters, um, I would definitely check into that one. Well, I want to watch that, that's for certain. I love Betty Davis. Uh, she's so weird. but um, <laughs> She is fantastic. Yeah. I've read her biography twice, and I really like her. But that sounds amazing. You have sold me. Well, and just to keep the love on Lucy for a moment, I do have another one. Miss Grant Takes Richmond. Now, this is uh, more of a comedy. Um, it is uh, about uh, Lucy Ball plays Miss Grant, who is the uh, niece of a judge. And she lives with her aunt and uncle. And she's on the way to marrying the lawyer, but she doesn't want to do that. She wants to learn how to take care of herself and get a job. So she works... Um, at a, or is learning how to be a stenographer and the overall secretary. And she falls into this uh, front of uh, gambling. <laughs> yes. And uh, it's absolutely, uh, and that one's uh, Miss Grant Takes Richmond. I love how this works uh, because it takes a woman of privilege who has every means to be able to be taken care of and decides she must take care of herself and then also sees that other people need to be taken care of. Mm. And takes that upon herself. So very interesting. I wrote both of those down. <laughs> I'll watch anything that Lucille Ball is in. I think that I Love Lucy is the greatest sitcom ever made. I met someone that's never seen an episode. I mean, I know they exist. I must. I, must I just didn't know I'd ever meet them. Find them and help them. <laughs> it's my new page. So my recommendation is Sleep My Love, directed by Douglas Sirk, starring Claudette Colbert, Robert Cummings, and Donna Meachie. 
and it was produced by Mary Pickford. She was one of the women who helped establish the Motion Picture Academy. Yes. It is about Allison Cortland, who wakes up in the middle of the night on board a train, but she can't remember how she got there. Ooh. And danger and suspense ensues. Uh, what's this in my drink? <laughs> that was the other working title. <laughs> and Lacey, what's your recommendation? What's this one? Well, that was going to be my other. I couldn't decide between two. Well, because I don't have a t- I don't have a recommendation because film noir. I'm I am developing a new love for it, so I'm still learning and seeing movies. So a lot of the ones that I would recommend, I recommend that recommended on our um, recap of the film noir festival. But I would encourage people to watch TCM, watch Noir Alley, and just to, to further enhance and educate themselves on this time period. Well, you can I'm take sure my other recommendation if you would like. Oh, no, no, no. I don't need to trade it. Oh, okay. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Go for it. Oh, okay. So my other one would be The Dark Corner, directed by Henry Hathaway and starring Lucille Ball, mm-hmm. Mark, Steve, Mark Stevens, and Clifton Webb. And it is about a secretary who tries to help her boss who is framed for murder. If you ever have the time uh, in your commute, please find radio shows. Lucille Ball was really big into radio shows as well. It's an amazing medium that I think needs to be brought back. You Mm -hmm. use your imagination. And you can also find radio shows at the Dark Corner. And uh, My Favorite Husband, which was the precursor to I Love Lucy. Mm. No, I totally agree. Radio shows need to come back. I think because podcasting and the technology we have nowadays, you could do some really amazing stylized podcasts. Definitely. Scripted. So thank you, Tiffany, for being with us. Thank you so much for your insight and your knowledge. This was amazing. (laughs) Well, thank you for having me. This is my first time on uh, the radio podcasting scene. Yay, welcome. (laughs) Yeah. But I just wanted to say real quick to you guys that if it's a little echoey, that's because we are recording at the Leander Public Library. So we want to give a shout out to them. Thank you for letting us use this wonderful space and make sure that you support your local libraries. Here is our clue for our next episode. I'm going to kill you nicely, but then I'm going to make a mess of your body afterwards so it looks worse than it is. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fatal Femmes. Like us on Facebook at Fatal Femmes and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Fatal underscore Femmes. Have a question or comment for the show? Shoot us an email at fatalfemmespodcast at gmail.com. Episodes are now available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or whatever podcatcher you use. Don't forget to leave us a rating while you're there. If you like what you've heard, check out our Patreon page. We have different sponsorship levels with perks that will allow us to make more content and better quality episodes. We hope you enjoyed this episode, because if you didn't, the consequences could be fatal. Thanks for listening.